Just before we begin the message today, and thank you to all who have participated, and Lorna and Nancy and Samuel and his family, all the greeters uh, for being here today and doing that. But I just want us to pause for a moment and bring to your attention the need of our, the people in Myanmar. And some of you have been watching the news. Uh, we have a family in our congregation from that country, and they've really asked us to pray for their families, for their friends, for what's happening. And so I just want us to, to be together in solidarity uh, with our brothers and sisters to pray for a return to peace, a restoration of justice, as we consider what's happening in the world around us. Well, this is the beginning of Passion Week, and I encourage you to journey through this. Uh, sometimes it's called Holy Week. In the context of our passage, it was Passover week, and that's a really important uh, aspect to recognize and acknowledge that this was Passover time. And when the gospel writers come to this Passover week, they slow down. I don't know if you remember this from when we did binge reading the Bible in the gospels. A lot is written about Jesus, but when it comes to this final week, a third of the gospel, of each one of the gospels, is dedicated to this one week. That's really remarkable, and it kind of sets the tone for us on how we're to read the Gospels. So spend a lot of time reading through slowly this one final week in the life of Jesus before his resurrection. And so I encourage you to do that throughout the week. We're going to have a couple of touch points, uh, the triumphal entry today, and then we're going to look at Good Friday, and then we're going to look at Resurrection Sunday. But there's a lot of other stuff that happened in that week that's really critical to understanding what Jesus came to do and what he has done for us. So I encourage you to look at all the other touch points. Well, Palm Sunday, of course, is named after palm branches. And we have some of them here to remind us of that today. The palm branches that were cut down and put in front of Jesus as the crowds yelled out, Hosanna, which means, anybody know? Save us, save now. And we're going to get to that and why that phrase was such a flashpoint, a political flashpoint uh, for people yelling it out, save now. So there's lots of things happening in this story, and I encourage you to dig a little bit deeper, but here are three primary things that I think are happening in the story that we need to pay attention to. First of all, in this triumphal entry, there is the revelation of the Lamb. Now, we won't see that directly in our passage, but this is taking into the context of the whole Passover scene. It was this day at the beginning of Passover that people would choose their lamb. And the lamb would actually live with them for some time to make sure that it was a lamb that was without defect. And this lamb, of course, would be sacrificed. And it was a reminder of the story in Egypt when the people were in slavery and when they were called upon to sacrifice a lamb and put the blood on the doorposts and that was part of the redemption, the release, the freedom out of Egypt. That's what Passover is all about. And so on Lamb Selection Day, who marches into the city? But Jesus. And John points out, this is the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. And so on Lamb Selection Day, the great Redeemer, Jesus, the Lamb of God, God's choice, walks into the city. And that's happening during this time. So you can see how people were quite excited. Second thing that's happening, the return of the king. And this is very obvious in our passage. This is the fulfillment of prophecy, and it's a prophecy from Zechariah and Isaiah. It's a reminder of the time in Samuel, actually, that 
King David rode into Jerusalem, not on a great war horse, but riding a donkey after conquering Absalom, his son. And so this is a reminder of how King David entered Jerusalem. And it's an indication that Jesus is coming as the returning king. Now, just back it up for a moment. Uh, When the Jewish people were in exile in Babylon, which they were for some time, when they were finally able to return, they did a couple things. Anybody remember? They rebuilt what? The walls around, and they rebuilt the temple, which was fantastic. But they never did have a king after that. There was no king to sit on David's throne. And so the throne was empty. That was the missing link, the missing piece. But now Jesus comes, and he is the king of the line of David. He is the returning king, and he comes to fill that missing link in the puzzle. That's also why people are so excited in this passage. And Matthew does a little extra for us. And uh, this is an interesting thing to do. Compare all the different accounts of Passion Week throughout the Gospels, and the little differences, little nuances, will give you clues into what's happening. One of the nuances that Matthew does is he has two animals that the disciples go get. Did you notice that? Go get the donkey and the foal of a donkey. Why does he do that? Well, in the original prophecy, it's mentioned that your king will come to you riding on the donkey, on the foal of a donkey. And although we imagine that as simply one animal, Matthew is echoing the prophecy in form. And so he's giving the very form, and that's why he mentions a donkey and the foal of a donkey. He wants to draw attention to the fact that this prophecy that people have been waiting for for so, so long is finally being fulfilled. The king is back. And so people are excited. The third thing, and this is, uh, you'd understand this by looking at the whole context of what Matthew is doing, both in the chapter before and leading up to the verses after what we read. The third thing that's happening is the return of God's glory. The return of the glory to the temple. Even after the temple was built, rebuilt, when the exiles went back, there's a, a day of celebration when the foundations were laid, And a lot of the people that were new, that were younger, they cheered. But a lot of the people that were older, they wept. And the passage in the Bible says, you couldn't tell between the weeping and the cheering. Well, why were the older ones weeping? Well, because the glory was never restored to the temple. It was never the the glory of Solomon's temple. It was never again sort of the inhabitation of that Shekinah glory, that sense of, of God's presence, his holiness among his people. But here we have, if you follow Matthew's account, the return of the glory. Ezekiel, one of the exiles, he witnessed in a vision the departure of God's glory from the temple. Do you remember Ezekiel? He's sitting on the banks of the river on his 30th birthday. He's supposed to be inducted into the hall of priesthood but he misses out his opportunity because he's in exile in Babylon. But he catches a glimpse of the glory of God over the river. And that sounds great and wonderful, except for Ezekiel says, what is it doing here? It's supposed to be in the temple. And so Ezekiel gets a vision of the uh, removal of God's glory from the temple. And this is how it kind of goes. The glory lifts up above the temple, gets to the threshold, goes out the east gate, and then up and over the Mount of Olives. That's how the glory departs. If you read Matthew's account, 
you'll see how that glory returns because Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God, the glory of God, the incarnate holiness of God, comes down from the Mount of Olives, comes in through the East Gate, and goes right to the temple. And so it's the return of the glory of God. Uh, can you see how people were getting excited of all this is happening? Well, in all of this, one thing stands out, and this is what I want to draw our attention to this morning, and it's found in verse 10. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? Here's the problem I have with that verse, (laughs) at least with our translation. Stirred is way too calm. I mean, I don't know what you think of when you think of stirred. Sometimes I just think of mixing a drink kind of stirred, and you're, you may be a little curious, and maybe some anticipation, but uh, the city being stirred doesn't really capture the heart of that word. That word actually means shaken, shaken. It's shaken, not stirred, just like James Bond's drinks, right? They're shaken, not stirred. The whole city was shaken, and we know this because Matthew uses the same word on two other occasions. He uses it in Matthew chapter 27. Listen to this. He says, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. Same word that's used of the triumphal entry. When the whole city was stirred. No, they were earthquaked. They were shaken at the presence of Jesus. And again, in Matthew chapter 28, verse 4, same word that Matthew uses, says this. The guards were so afraid when they saw the angel. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. (laughs) The same word. And so we have to understand that Jesus coming into the city in this way shook the city to the foundations. Would have been about a million people milling around Jerusalem because lots of people in for the Passover, lots of Roman guards, lots of onlookers, lots of celebrants, all there. But it says the city was shooken. It was shaken to its core at the presence of Jesus coming in. Why is this? Why? It reminds us, and it reminds me as I've been reflecting on this, that Jesus didn't come to simply stir us. He actually came to shake things up. And I think the longer we go on in the church, the the more that we forget the radical nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ and how he actually meant to make us uncomfortable first. He meant to disturb us. He meant to shake us out of our comfort in order to lead us into something greater. And that's what Jesus is doing here. How does he do it? Well, Jesus intentionally confronts the powers. That's what we're seeing in this passage. Uh, Jesus, to this point, had really kind of avoided Jerusalem, and for good reason. Because any prophet that went to Jerusalem, it usually ended badly, right? Jesus isn't the first Messiah to come along, by the way. We learn in the Acts of the Apostles that there were others that came claiming to be something. The authorities essentially murdered them, executed them, and their followers stopped. Jesus is very different in that sense. And so Jesus is not the first one to come in this way, but when he comes in, the whole uh, city is shaken up because of this, because Jesus confronts the powers. There was a time when Jesus revealed to his followers that he was going to go to Jerusalem. Do you remember what Peter did? Peter said, no, Lord, you can't go there. And what did Jesus respond to him? Get behind me, Satan. 
You don't understand the will of God. And I think it was Thomas in that passage that finally said, well, fine, let us go too so we can die with him. That was kind of just surrendered. They knew that if Jesus went to Jerusalem, it would be trouble. It would probably be the end of his career. And they really wanted a living Messiah, not another dead Messiah. And that was their expectation. But Jesus says, I must go to Jerusalem. So at this point, the gloves are off. It's go time. It's let's get ready to rumble. That's what Jesus is doing as he marches into Jerusalem. And we see that in a couple ways. First of all, Jesus confronts the secular powers. And he does so simply by marching in as a king. That is not a wise thing to do in the Roman world. There really is only one king, and that is Caesar. Caesar is Lord. And so when the Christians start shouting, Jesus is Lord, that's a rebel song, right? And that will get people in trouble every single time and twice on Sunday. And so this is what Jesus does. He comes in and he clearly understands that what he is doing is showing himself to be the king. He is claiming that authority. He is the king. And the people are shouting, what? Hosanna, which we sing it in hymns. We teach it to our kids. Um, it's a fun word to say from time to time. But this was such a politically charged word. Uh, Passover week was a very emotional time for the Jewish people. Still is. It was a time when they were, were reminded of the time that they were slaves and how they were freed from oppression. And so when Jesus comes in, they're saying, do it again. Save us from these Romans. Save us from this oppression. In this Passover, set us free. Save us now. Those are very, very dangerous words. And that's what's coming here. Well, at the same time that Jesus was entering in the East Gate, do you know who was entering on the West Gate? Pontius Pilate. At the beginning of Passover every year, Pontius Pilate would march in with a full entourage of Roman troops. We know this from historical records. And they'd march in right at the beginning of Passover week, right at the same time that Jesus is coming in the East Gate. Rome and the might of Rome is marching in at the West Gate to keep the peace, to show their power, to show their authority. So what's happening here? This is a collision course of the kingdoms, isn't it? The kingdoms of this world represented by Pontius Pilate, meeting the kingdom of our God and his Christ as Jesus marches in. And that's going to be a showdown that comes to the point where Pilate and Jesus meet, and Jesus says what? My kingdom is not of this world, which is essentially to say, it's bigger than yours. <laughs> I've got greater authority in all of this. And that's why I don't have to answer your questions. And so this is a showdown, a clash of the kingdoms. And this is how Jesus confronts the secular powers. But he also goes on to confront the religious powers. And if we kept reading that passage, we'd see Jesus going in and doing what was by far my favorite scene in the Gospels. He makes a whip, he turns over the tables, he chucks people out of the temple. Why does Jesus get so angry in this cleansing of the temple? Well, there was a marketplace there, right? The marketplace was a legitimate source that people needed if they were coming to the temple. You needed to change your currency from Roman currency into temple currency. You probably needed to buy an animal or two if you're going to sacrifice, especially if you come from a long way. So the marketplace wasn't the problem. The problem, as we compare the other gospels, is where the marketplace was located. 
The marketplace was located, it appears, in the court of the Gentiles. This is a special part of the temple that was reserved for those from the nations to come and pray to Yahweh. And they had set up a marketplace. In other words, they had excluded the outsiders. They had excluded the other. And that's why Jesus in some of the other gospels is quoted as saying, my house shall be called a house of prayer for what? For all nations. That's the point. That's why Jesus is so angry. And that's how he confronts the religious leaders. So do you see the showdown? Uh, For Jesus, the gloves are off. He is pushing all of the buttons. He's no longer kind of slipping through the crowd. He's no longer saying, don't call me king. My time has not come. He's saying, it's now. It's happening. It's going down. And you're going to witness it firsthand. So this is Palm Sunday. Jesus brings disruption. He shakes things up. As we reflect on this, I think if we took Jesus seriously, we'd understand also that following Jesus puts us in conflict with the powers. If we're to follow Jesus truly and truthfully and radically, then we are going to put, be put in conflict with the powers, with the powers of our culture. I mean, when I say the powers, I think sometimes we think immediately of government, and that might be true in some occasions, but especially with the powers in our culture. This preoccupation with things like wealth and status and image, we're constantly fighting against these powers that has tremendous grip over our lives. And Jesus wants to shake things up. He wants to help us confront the powers. And that's why we're reminded always to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. But following Jesus also puts us in conflict with the powers of religion. And this is the challenge that came to me And I'm going to share some maybe personal things that might shake us up a little bit this morning as we think about confronting religiosity that might even exist within our own hearts. The power of religion. Because sometimes what we do is we say, well, we're not not part of the secular powers. We believe in the separation of church and state. But then we use our religious powers in order to mask or cloak our, our thirst to have power and to wield it over others. And we do it in strange and weird and harmful ways. And I think we do this in the church. And that's why so much harm has been done in the name of Christ and under the cover of the banner of the church. So much harm has been done. I think today we still use our power to exclude others. This is what Jesus was really angry about. I remember a number of years ago, uh, this is a personal story I share with some risk, I guess. A number of years ago, uh, I was at a church and we had a special um, event after the service. It was Canada Day. And the event after the service is we had a barbecue. And it was great. We had a ton of food, lots of people. There was a, an excited atmosphere. But there's a man that came through the doors off the street. He meant to come to the service, but his bus, he missed his bus. But he managed to come a little bit late. He came through the doors, he saw the food, he went to help himself, but somebody stopped him in the church. Somebody went up and said, excuse me, did you attend the service? And the man said, no, I didn't. He said, well, this is for people who are part of the church and sent the man away. Well, I caught just the tail end of that conversation. So I kind of chased the man down uh, to the door 
and was chatting with them, trying to encourage them. I was just a misunderstanding. They're just trying to, you know, protect uh, the church and those kind of things. Um, but won't you come and join us? While I was encouraging him to come in, all of a sudden the congregation, in total innocence and wonderful singing, burst into singing, O Canada. And so here I had this strange, disturbing, shaken up kind of experience of standing at the door with an Aboriginal man while the church sang O Canada after just having excluded him from our table. That disturbs me. That shakes me up. That's a reality we still have to deal with today. We have to understand that we need to make room at the table, even if that makes us uncomfortable, because that's the intent of the gospel. That's the intent of what Jesus was after here. So not only does Jesus, this is so easy for us to think, go Jesus, go get them. Go get those awful authorities. Go get those powers. Go get those religious freaks. And yet Jesus comes to to our hearts and says, what about you? What kind of powers are you holding on to? How do you classify and condemn and exclude people that are not like you, that are not part of who you are and who you belong to? That's the challenge. That's where I get shaken up when Jesus comes and challenges me this week. So how? How do we shake off the grip of power? that so easily captures our heart? Well, I think it's by learning to serve. Later on in Holy Week, Jesus actually shows how we're supposed to use power. Does anybody remember the story? Jesus talks a lot about power, actually. There's a lot of sins that Jesus doesn't even mention because at the heart of a lot of sin is power and our quest for power. And so Jesus talks about power a lot. And later on in Holy Week, what does he do? He gets down and washes the feet of his disciples because he says the greatest among you is the one who serves. I think that's the whole part of Passion Week. That's the whole part of Jesus coming in riding on a donkey and not a war horse because he's showing, he's displaying to us that the greatest among you is the one who serves. My brother Alan, who is many years older than I am and much wiser, um, when I was starting out at, at a church plant in Surrey, um, I was, this is was my first time being a solo pastor. And so I was engaged in some uh, scenarios that I was unfamiliar with. And so I went to my brother, Alan, who had much more experience as a pastor than I had. I said, how do I manage this? What do I do? You know, give me some strategies. And he said, whenever you meet with people, just ask yourself this question. How can I serve this person today? It changed the way and still does challenge me to change the way I see people that come into my life. How do I serve this person today? Now, that's not weakness. That's not asking the question, how can I be a doormat for people to walk all over me? Jesus didn't do that, but he still served. Sometimes serving people means speaking the truth in love. I know one time in the church plant, very early on, we served a couple by helping them find a new church. That's serving sometimes too. Uh, but we ask the question, what does it mean to serve this person today? And so that's the challenge that I want to issue for this week to all of us. To ask that question, how can I serve the people in my life? How can I serve my wife? How can I serve my husband? How can I serve my kids? But even this, how can I serve my boss? How can I serve my neighbor? 
How can I serve that person that just rubs me the wrong way every single time? What does it mean to serve? Why would we do that? Because Jesus did. That's exactly what he did. Because your king, Jesus, comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey. He came to serve. Because Jesus wants us to make room in our lives for the other, to create an open space so that all might come to know him and worship him and shout, Hosanna, save us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for sending your son. As we journey through this very important week in the life of Jesus, we pray that you might speak to our hearts. Reveal the wicked and sinful ways in us, but also lead us to that way everlasting. Change us, Father, into the image of your Son, so that your glory might be revealed to the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.